There we go. Can you hear me now? Yes, sir. Jim T, everybody. And uh, I'm so glad to see you out of that hospital. I'm fucking, uh, yeah. Thanks. Uh, I thanks, love you loads. Mark. And thanks much for inviting me here. It's an honor to be here. Uh, see all these smiling faces. Uh, it's what keeps me alive. Uh, I was born an alcoholic. My first drink was a small glass of beer that was given to me when I was about six years old. Uh, when people sent out for pizza and beer, I was given a small, and, and I knew at that time that this was the elixir of the gods. It really, really changed the way I looked at the world for the time that I was under the influence. Um, it was uh, no drinking until I was about 12, and uh, I uh, got drunk and went into a blackout at my sister's wedding. And I woke up that morning afterwards and said, I will never drink again as long as I live. This was repeated thousands and thousands of times. I would wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to stop drinking today and be in a blackout that night. But uh, the, the preparation for a life of alcoholism and, and, and uh, difficulties began uh, a long time before that. My earliest memory is my mother uh, holding my hand. I was about three or four years old, and we were in Brooklyn, and she was bringing me to a foster home. And uh, when my mom, I, I remember I met my foster sisters and brothers and parents, and uh, I was, I can remember this clearly, that I was very, very uh, anxious about that time. And when my mother left without me, I had to be restrained. And that set the tone for feeling that I'm a disposable person. Uh, the house that I would, I lived in that house for 11 years. And uh, it didn't go well. When I was six, they brought in a boarder, uh, a man who was a pedophile. And he had sexually abused me from when I was six to I left at 14. Um, the house itself, I never felt I belonged there. And it was, you know, a really uh, stringent Catholic basis. And uh, you didn't talk about sex. Sex was evil. And I knew if I would say anything to my Aunt Mary, who was my uh, foster mom, that I would be in the biggest trouble of my life if I would tell her I was being abused. So I kept this information to myself. Uh, the, there was compensatory situations here. 
in those days, they didn't have Little League or they didn't have, you know, parental involvement with every uh, aspect of, ch of children. We went out on the street and we played. And the compensatory thing was sports. And we played, uh, played stickball, football, touch football, uh, baseball, basketball, in addition to stoop ball, box ball, and all these other things, all run by children with a children's culture. And that compensated. I remember thinking that uh, the house where I lived, with the foster family, that was in black and white. And when I went out on the street with my friends, that was in Technicolor. So, and uh, I was uh, introduced to the Catholic Church, which, you know, uh, I've had difficulties with. When I first came into the fellowship, I uh, hated all things Catholic. It wasn't until I was sober for about 20 years that I realized that the Catholic Church saved my life. They gave me the Catholic Youth Organization basketball. They gave me uh, uh, Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon movies after school and provided these things that compensated for the difficulties that I had at home. And I remember. Uh, I was selective in my hatred for the church. We had a nun in school, Sister, uh, I can't remember her name. I'm, I'm say. Incidentally, I do have senior moments now where I feel I'm going to say something eloquent, and then I get halfway through a sentence and I forget what I'm saying. So I try to make something up relative to what I was going to say, and it never comes out right. So I'm warning you that that may happen. Sister Frances Stephanie, she was a violent woman who hated children. And uh, she was clear in my memory, things that she did. Now, there was an Irish nun who I don't remember her name who I completely uh, left out of the picture. The Irish nun gave me a lesson when I was in the fifth grade that really stayed with me after I got sober. He uh, was, uh, she was the victim of the uh, uh, black and tans in Ireland in the 1920s. Uh, she lived on a farm with her large family, and the black and tans invaded her house. They burnt the house to the ground, took the farm animals, and killed her father in the presence of the family. So she spent years in deep hatred for anything English. Uh, she eventually got the spiritual life and realized that she had to uh, work on forgiveness and, uh, and, and pray for her uh, tormentors, which she did. And she chose a spiritual life and went into the convent. She also said, you know, it's our responsibility to do something when somebody's just getting hurt. 
It's, it's a human responsibility. Now, this lesson I never really gave much credence to. I forgot, completely forgot about it. And rather than focus on the Irish nun, I would focus on Sister Frances Stephanie. You know, she was, uh, gave me a better picture of what happened. That it wasn't until I put the steps in my life that I started to regain some memory of that. And the fact that uh, I believe that the Catholic Church saved my life, because given the situation that I was in in that home, I would have really been crazy. Not that I wasn't crazy for many years. So I, I started to drink heavily when I was about 15. Prior to that, uh, my only escape, my only uh, respite from this was sports. And uh, I, I loved sports. And then when I was 15, I couldn't play anymore. I couldn't play sports. I was too busy drinking. I drank any time, every time I could. When I was about 17, uh, somebody introduced some white powder into the neighborhood. And uh, I tried it, and I said, you know, this is pretty good stuff. There's no hangover, and uh, you get you get really nice. This was heroin. And that set me off on a 12-year a, a uh, odyssey, spent uh, uh, getting drugs, buying drugs, and, and doing illegal stuff to get the drugs, and interspersed by uh, a lot of uh, visits to penitentiaries, in, uh, uh, institutions, and, and, and stuff like that. And I remember when I first started to look at my alcoholism, my, my thing was, I'm not an alcoholic, I'm a dope fiend. And uh, I... Uh, Wound up in, in 1969, uh, I got arrested as usual. It was, you know, like I made a, a, a revolving door between the jailhouse and the street up until then. And I got arrested. And uh, at that time, there was progressive change in the law that they wanted to treat addiction as an illness rather than a criminal offense. So they opened a place called uh, the Narcotic Addiction Control Commission. And instead of going to jail, I went to NAC. And for the first time in many, many years, I met some decent people. And uh, it, it gave me a sense of hope. Now, they didn't know anything about addiction or alcoholism in, in, in those days, even the people that, that provided treatment for it. So uh, I got a look at the world from a different perspective, but unlike the fellowship, there, there was no design for living. And uh, so I, I, didn't, I went away for a year to uh, uh, the Narcotic Addiction Control Commission. And 
I came out and I was determined that I was going to try to do my best. I had, I, I left school in the ninth grade. So I needed a, a high school equivalency, which I had gotten in that program. They, they gave it to me. And I had a parole officer, a narcotic parole officer, who insisted that I register for courses at the local community college. I was against it. I, I really didn't think I belonged there. The, the, the self-esteem was so low, self-awareness was so non-existent that no way I'm gonna go. And, and this guy, Gene Tice was his name, the, the PO. He said, no, you're going to school, you're going to school. So I enrolled in Borough Manhattan Community College. And uh, first uh, half of the semester, I didn't open my mouth. I looked at all these people these young people who were all bright, intelligent and whatnot, and who am I, an old dope fiend who don't know what's going on. So the uh, midterms came up and I did nothing, but I, I, I would take verbatim notes in that class and I studied everything I should have studied. And the midterms came up, I got an A plus on the midterms. Well. The rest of the semester, I didn't shut up. I had opinions on everything. And it shows, you know, I'm either afraid of, of who I am, or I think I'm better than everybody else. And I want to prove to the world that I'm better than everyone else. This is just some of the dynamics that I go through. Anyway, I got out of school, uh, I, I graduated, in the last semester, now I haven't had a drink for three years. I haven't had a shot of dope for three years since I got out of that knack business. Uh, I was under a lot of stress. I was working full time as an assistant counselor and uh, I was involved in sports and everything. And, and I, I felt a lot of stress. And I didn't know anything about alcoholism. And I thought, you know, a little shot of whiskey would, would just calm me down and get rid of the stress. So in between classes, I got a couple of those airplane uh, things of whiskey. And I went into the, the boys' room and I drank, drank them. And uh, it worked. The stress was gone. But the only thing is, within 30 days, I was drinking a quart of vodka a day. And I just managed to get out of school before the bottom fell out. So here I am, an ex-dope fiend with a bachelor's degree and uh, full of uh, self-importance and everything. I thought that you know I, I knew things that nobody else knew. And uh, I uh, remember I got my first job at a, at a, uh, uh, a therapeutic community in Holland, and I lasted five days. 
because I was I drank a quart of vodka, came into work the next morning and attempted to run a group. And in those days, groups were attack groups. And uh, there's nothing greater in an attack group than to, than to attack the, the group leader. And these guys knew that I was drinking. They knew, even though I had nothing to drink in the morning before the group. And it was one of the most humiliating experiences I ever had. And I got fired and I left there. And uh, the drinking went on escalating and I got a job in the methadone program. The uh, methadone program would hire anybody at that time. That's how I got the job. And uh, I uh, remember one day after work, uh, they had a small party and I had did my usual drinking and I wasn't completely intoxicated, but I was intoxicated. And I said, this is bullshit. You know, I, I might as well shoot some dope because the alcohol is really uh, contributing to a lot of dysfunction. Couldn't be more than dope. So drunk, I went to Third Avenue to a connection and I bought, I purchased a $5 bag of heroin and two Valiums. And I went home and ingested that uh, product. Uh, I fell out on my left side and stayed that way for 12 hours. I woke up and I was suffering from what's called the crushing syndrome, where all the nerves get crushed in arm and leg. And they had to cut down. It, it, it was swelling to such an extent that they had to do a cut down on that, on my left arm and left leg. Uh, and I was in the hospital for four months with that thing. Uh, I didn't learn anything from that. I got out of the hospital, I started to drink again. I wasn't using drugs, I started to drink again. And <clears throat> Uh, I remember I was still working for the methadone program. I don't know what the hell was going on in their heads that they would keep me as an employee, but they did. And uh, I, uh, I would, I had an apartment and I would work during the day supposed to be a counselor, but, you know, incapable of relating to other people. I would go to work and then I would get out of work. I would stop at the bodega, buy two 16-ounce cans of beer, stop at the liquor store, buy a quart of vodka, and go home, and that was it. Prior to that, during the time that I was not drinking, it was the height of the Vietnam War, and I got involved with the peace movement, which was another good thing for me. I met some very nice people who treated me nice, and that was really reinforcing. However, when the drink started in my last year of college, I uh, couldn't. I I had to divorce myself from political activity uh, because I was a drunk. 
so I, I maintained this existence for a while, going to work most of the time, uh, but I would use up my sick time, personal time, and, and uh, vacation time by February, usually. But it was all hangover time that I was taking off. But I, I would go home and uh, and drink my vodka and pass out and drink some more vodka and pass out and drink some more vodka and pass out. And at times be able to get up and go to work. Well, this started, the progression continued with that. And I couldn't do that very well anymore. And eventually I just stopped going to work and stayed in my apartment and drank. I don't know where the money was going to come for the vodka and everything, but that's the way I was doing it, just uh, laying in bed drinking vodka. My political friends uh, found out about it, and they had the police break down the door, and two very large cops came in, and uh, they found a bottle of vodka under the bed. And uh, they said, you're going to have to go for treatment. And uh, they took me to Freeport uh, Hospital, where I got introduced to the fellowship of AA. And uh, came into AA still very crazy. Uh, I... I I went into the, the, my first meetings, and I felt safe there. First time in a long time, I really felt safe. Uh, these bunch of religious fanatics, they were keeping me all right. And this is where I belong. And uh, I... Uh, I couldn't really relate. I couldn't, you know, understand steps or sponsorship or anything like that. I just wanted to hang out with these folks. And that was, I, went, I was in Manhattan and, and they had a really good community of AA. We uh, used to go to meetings and walk along Broadway and stop in for coffee and then go to another meeting at night. It was really, and I was protected by this environment. I felt safe, still grandiose and still quite disturbed. Uh, I uh, felt that my purpose in sharing at the meeting was to make an impression on people. And I had a sponsor at the time. So he said, you ain't got nothing to say. You have to listen. And for some reason, I started to take him seriously that maybe he knows something that I don't know. And gradually, I got to a point where I could relate to other people in the fellowship. And uh, the first four years, I went out four times for one day. And... Uh, the last time I drank was 1980. Uh, I uh, opened up the refrigerator and there was a bottle of white wine, half a bottle. And I pulled it out and I drank it and I, and I got terribly, terribly sick. I got a cast iron stomach. 
but this half bottle of white wine made me really sick. My wife at the time called everybody she knew in AA. And the last three times I had relapsed, I had the same thing. All these AA folks came over my house and took me to meetings. And my sponsor at the time, he was a sponsor of mine for 30 years. Bill, he came over and said, uh, I, I want you to come with me to uh, Jersey City. And in Jersey City, uh, it, a young woman called Bill and said her father is killing himself with alcohol and he please help. So this is a guy we were going to see, the guy that was killing himself with alcohol. Now, I know it's not a very good practice to uh, do 12-step work when you're counting your sobriety in hours. But I went with him. And we got into his room, and he was laying on the couch in his own filth. We got him cleaned up and took him to a detox facility where they admitted him. And uh, just to backstrap a little bit, when I was 19 years old, I went to my first AA meeting that was called Addicts Anonymous. This was in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. It was one of the few places that treated addiction. There was a guy there named Coney Allen Max. And Coney Allen Max was an old drug dealer uh, doping, and uh, I knew him from the street. And this nurse told me that Max was walking around with his paper slippers, drool coming out of his mouth, and not very responsive to anything. This nurse told me, she says, is that what you want to be when you grow up, when you get older? And of course, I was 19. I didn't think I'd ever get older. You know, that, that was ridiculous, and I paid no attention to it. Now, fast forward to the time Bill, Bill McGovern uh, brought me to Jersey City to see this old man. Saw the old man on the couch, and Bill said, I'm glad you had the opportunity to see yourself as an elderly person. And I said, holy shit, that's me laying on the couch that's me i could see it and it was uh uh i forget what you call it the uh, uh moment of clarity yeah and uh i haven't had a drink since then and i still had to grow up i had you know a lot of lot of flaws character and stuff. And uh, when I was 20 years sober, we had a meeting that went on for, uh, it, it was Bill, at the time my sponsor was getting very ill, he was relegated to a wheelchair. So we started a, a meeting at his house, so he wouldn't have to, you know, uh, uh, do all this stuff to get to meetings. And uh, another meeting splintered off a step meeting. So this meeting went on for about 30 years. 
Saturday and Sunday. Uh, Bill, you know, passed, and uh, we continued the meeting. And we were doing a fifth step. And I uh, see, I was determined at that time that I would never, never say anything about being sexually abused. Uh, and, and I kept, I swore I would take this secret to the grave with me. So in doing this fifth step meeting, I told my friends who I was with that I was sexually abused as a kid. And that really freed me up and allowed me to have some kind of self-awareness, which I never had. And to put the steps really to use rather than just the functionary. I, uh, senior moments. Uh, I uh, started to think, well, you know, I'm not such a bad guy. 20 years sobriety, you know, have to worry about, you know, not being a bad guy, but I, I'm not such a bad guy. And uh, it, I, I, put the, uh, I put the 11th step to work. And uh, that was, you know, I'm a God seeker, you know, I don't believe in God. And uh, it, it allowed me to, uh, to look at other people, not as competitors or as somebody that I would have to uh, do better than, but as uh, part of a living uh, substance. Uh, after that, I, uh, my involvement in AA and my working of the steps and everything changed. You know, uh, it was uh, uh, Socrates, he, it wasn't Socrates, it was Socrates quoting Plato. He said that an unexamined life is a life not worth living. He said that 4,000 years ago. And that was really what uh, uh, really the fellowship did for me. It gave me a look at who I am. And I, I'm not such a bad guy as I always thought I was. Now, when, uh, when I first went to college, uh, my parole officer had to push me into college. I was in a fellowship. I had about five years over, and my sponsor told me, you got to go to graduate school. I said, I don't belong there. Yeah, you belong there. So I went to graduate school, got a master's in social work. And then about five years later, he said, uh, look, you belong to a union, 1199, a, a healthcare union. And they pay tuition for a doctoral program. I said, I don't belong in a doctoral program. Said, yes, you do. So each advance that I had made, it wasn't my decision. It was other people. And it was the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous that pushed me further. 
So I applied for uh, the doctoral program, the PhD program at uh, NYU. And when I got the letter, got the letter back, we are pleased to uh, inform you that you have been selected for study at our doctoral program. I looked at that letter and I said, well, are these people crazy? They take dope fans in their, uh, in their doctoral program. How smart can they be? And that was, you know, I'm still struggling with that sense of self and, and, and uh, uh, looking at myself from a, a, uh, a realistic perspective. So I went in the doctoral program and I got a doctorate. And uh, meanwhile, uh, I had uh, I had gotten married. We had two children uh, who never saw me drink. And unfortunately, I lost one of them three years ago. Uh, he took his life. And that was the most painful most difficult thing that I ever went through. I've been through a lot of stuff, you know, from my self-inflicted, mostly going to jail and everything like that, uh, disappointments in life and all that stuff. But losing my Brian, that was something that will never leave me. Uh, I... Uh, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in a creator God, but I think there is something to all this stuff, creation that we're in the dark ages about. And the only thing I can do is try to look and see what's going on here. Uh, I, uh, I gotta say, remember, uh, oh, uh, I start my day with prayer. The only thing is, it's not a, a prayer of petition. I don't petition any God to do anything for me. It's uh, a prayer of affirmation. I affirm what I'm going to do. I start with today, I will... I will make an effort to avoid violent thoughts, rage, rage scenarios, moral victories, grandiosity, self-pity, resentment, and self-loathing. Today, I will make an effort to practice kindness, humility, and gratitude. Uh, Today, I will uh, I will honor my beloved Brian, and that's the way I start my day every day. Now you can call it prayer, you can call it whatever you want to call it, but that uh, that helps me see who I am. And uh, actually, you know, I guess the Catholic uh, uh, repercussions come along. I, have pictures of of uh, Brian. He was an athlete, uh, a very very good athlete, and I have pictures of him all over the wall with a candle under that. And when I do my prayer, I, I light the candle, 
And uh, I, I still, you know, I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up, but uh, I'm, I'm having a, some fun trying it. I just got out of the hospital having the obligatory uh, uh, pneumonia that most 85-year-olds have. I'm 86, and every couple of years I get a pneumonia and I wind up in the hospital. But I still, you know, since I got sober, uh, I've been uh, training and working out, and I still work out every day, not as much as I did, you know, 40 years ago. But I ran a few marathons, and, and uh, I, I have a, a beautiful, beautiful grandchild. And I just saw him, you know, yesterday, and his little league team, he... Uh, he got a hit and scored a run. And I was just as proud as I could possibly be. And this is the essence of joy that I have, that I am devastated by the loss of my Brian. But there is still, you folks taught me that there is still joy in life. And I have to cling on to that. Uh, I guess... You know, I don't, I don't know. Uh, Mark said I can speak for an hour. But I don't know if I got an hour. Uh, and, you know, I see a lot of nice faces here. And, uh, you know, if, if it's early, we can uh, continue. But that's all I got. Thanks for letting me share.